How can we make the world better? By making ourselves better. The Dr. Joe Show explores how you can make positive personal change by using his groundbreaking and highly effective I Am approach to understand who we are and why we do what we do. Your small changes can have big effects. Join us now for the Dr. Joe Show with Mark Stiles of Stiles Law and your host, Dr. Joe Schrand. All right, welcome listeners to the Dr. Joe Show, exploring who we are and why we do what we do. Usually we have Mark Stiles here, but they are busy tonight, but that does not take away anything from what we are going to be discussing tonight because I have the great opportunity and privilege of introducing one of my actual mentors and teachers from many, many years ago uh, at McLean Hospital, Dr. Lloyd Setterer. I'm just going to read his bio real quick. Uh, Dr. Lissetera is a psychiatrist, public health doctor, and medical journalist. He's had a lot of different, totally engaging jobs, like being the medical director of a Harvard teaching hospital, the medical editor for mental health for the HuffPost, the commissioner of mental health for New York City when Michael Bloomberg was mayor, and the chief medical officer for the New York City and the New York State Office of Mental Health, the largest state mental health agency in the country. He taught medical writing for the lay public for 17 sequential semesters at Columbia, has published 14 books, seven for professional audiences, seven for the general public, and his latest book, which we're going to be talking about tonight along with all other things, being published January 9th. It's right around here, guys. Caught in the crosshairs of American healthcare. He's also written 500 medical papers, lay opinions and op-ed articles, blogs, film streaming, book reviews, and this one, my favorite, and I quote, he says, my wife and I completed the 1,600-kilometer, 1,000-mile Santiago de Compostela pilgrimage trail, the Camino, from south-central France over the Pyrenees on the Napoleon Trail and due west of the Pacific Ocean and the city of Santiago de Compostela, a journey for body and soul. Dr. Lloyd Cetera, it is such a pleasure having you here tonight. Welcome. Same here. I'm really delighted and honored, uh, Joe, to be on your show and to be working for you rather than the way it was 30 years ago. Yeah. I mean, remember those days. Let's, let's just dive in. How did you wind up at McLean, which is arguably one of the greatest teaching hospitals of Harvard, and one of the greatest psychiatric hospitals perhaps in the world? Well, there was suddenly and unexpectedly a new psychiatrist-in-chief, Stephen Mirren, Dr. Stephen Mirren, because Sherb Frazier had been there, and he stepped down when the dean demonstrated that he had plagiarized some of the material that he wrote, which was you know done by his assistants, you know, copying and pasting, but he fell on his sword. And in no time, there was no psychiatrist-in-chief, you know, he then called on Mirren, who had been at McLean doing clinical work and research, uh, was uh, at a nearby for-profit hospital, you know, and uh, said to Steve, I need your help. And Steve showed up and he said, you're going to be the new psychiatrist in chief. And a few weeks later, sure, disappeared. And Mirren suddenly realized that the job that he had been hired for wasn't one he was going to be able to satisfy because he was had all these additional responsibilities. So he called me. I knew him from uh, the professional society and otherwise. And he said, do you want to do any consultation here at McLean? I was working in Cambridge at that time, Mount Auburn, Cambridge Hospital. And I said, sure. And he said, well, come 
we'll have lunch. And we did in his office, tuna fish sandwiches. And by an hour into the our conversation, he said, I want you to be the medical director of the hospital. Hmm. And I thought, wow, <laughs> I didn't expect this. But I said, yes. And that's how it happened. It's incredible. Over tuna fish sandwiches. I think there's something quite fishy about that, but I won't go into that. <laughs> good one. That's a good and Mount, Mount Auburn it has, has great meaning to me. My dad was chief of pediatrics at Mount Auburn for, for many years. Hyman Schrand. Yeah. So it is remarkable, isn't it, how these small changes have effects, how we sometimes meet people. And I just want to, again, give a shout out so the audience understands that I was there at McLean during the period of time Dr. Sederer was chief, but also that's what he's writing about with Caught in the Crosshairs of American Healthcare. How did you come up with the title? Well, think about crosshairs. You know, there's a vertical line, a horizontal line, and it's usually in the scope of a rifle. Yeah. And in the center of that is the target who's apt to receive bullets and the shooter is scot-free or maybe not, maybe shot. But so, and that's what happened to medical care in this country. It was in the crosshairs of for-profit corporations, equity, private equity companies, increasingly at a blazing uh, rate. And one of the places, many places that they wanted to bring to their knees, you know, pay less, do more, uh, uh, essentially changed the ethos of the hospital was McLean. And we said, no, <laughs> we paid the consequences. Mm -hmm. So they, because <clears throat> these are the intermediaries and they control referrals, they control payment. And suddenly our referral sources just dropped away, disappeared because they had to get approval from these fiscal financial intermediaries. So suddenly the hospital plummeted because the hospital lived on the provision of inpatient care, a little bit like a uh, hotel. You have to fill the bed, fill the rooms to have revenue and the same thing with hospital beds. So we started to lose millions of dollars very soon. And that's because the whole system was changing. I don't, I don't think many people understand what was really going on there. Um, one of my colleagues said it was sort of like, like boiling a lobster. You do it very slowly, um, but you don't realize what's happening until it's too late. Was, was that really the case? Was that going on? No. I, I, I think it was, um, from the moment they targeted us, these intermediaries, these insurance companies, we were in danger. We were in peril uh, because our charges were higher than anyone else's. Our length of stay was average 63 days. And when you think about now, average inpatient stays are 14 days, maybe sometimes less and less affordable. So do the math. 14 days at $600 a day, as opposed to 63 days at $1,200 a day. They just saw this and said, we're going to take them down. And they tried. And we had to totally redo the culture and work at the hospital clinical care. And culture is about people. So that's what we did over a number of years until we finally stopped losing money. Why target McLean? Why do you think that was happening? Why do I think it happened at McLean? Yeah. Why do they target McLean? I mean, all the different hospitals. Well, they were targeting all the hospitals and most of them just acceded to what they wanted because they had the money, they had the uh, referrals, but McLean didn't. And McLean 
you know, you were there, uh, could be considered a trophy hosp for these financial companies to bring to its knees. And uh, so I think we had a little additional value, symbolic value, but it was about cutting costs. It was about changing care uh, in a way that where doctors didn't make decisions, MBAs made decisions, clinical decisions. Yeah. Now, I, I remember those days and doing the um, reviews, you know, for folks who, who don't know, when, when you have a patient on an inpatient psychiatric hospital, uh, it's not a free ride. We have to be talking with these reviewers on a regular basis to get extra days for them. Um, that hadn't happened before? No. And it was it had been for decades. What the doctor wanted was what the doctor got. What the hospital wanted, the hospital got. And suddenly that was turned upside down. And you, like many other doctors, had to go hat in hand to these 1-800 numbers where there wasn't a doctor at the end of the line. There was a clerk or somebody. And that quickly was replaced by automated decision-making, which is now called artificial intelligence. So you couldn't even talk to somebody. You had to present your case. And the program was written in such a way that you had to satisfy, without even knowing it, 10 or 11 criteria. So you were almost certain to be denied. And I thought, well, who designed these programs? And I thought, well, it must be the same company that designed casino machines. Because the house always wins. I remember... Having to get that approval, and um, I had a strategy, Lloyd. I must admit, submit. If I, first, I never lied. You know, if I didn't think the patient needed to be there, I would tell them. You know, we don't have a place for them to go. Can we get a couple of extra days? You know, to decrease rates so that we can at least find a place. But if they did need to be there, and I was getting pushback, I would say, you know, I appreciate your review. Can I just get your name because I'm going to put it in the chart. Mr. Smith has denied care to this actively suicidal patient. Just want you to know that so your name will be in the chart. Always worked. <laughs> That's really the kind of uh, offense you have to run to protect your patient. Yeah, it was. It was. So what about the clinical staff there at McLean? I was, you know, read through the book. It sounds like um, there was some pushback from, from some of the folks who'd been there for a while. Yes. Well, the hospital doctor medical services were principally provided by private psychiatrists and psychologists with offices on the campus. And their clinical model of care was long-term inpatient psychotherapy. And as you recall, these are very ill patients, almost all of them with psychotic disorders, serious trauma disorders, bipolar, and long-term inpatient psychiatry. They didn't, being in the hospital for a long time wasn't good for them. In fact, it was often bad for them. And psychotherapy is not what was going to restore them uh, functionally. So this, but that was the way it was done. And this was the culture of the hospital uh, carried by uh, these large number of private docs on the campus. Lloyd, how do we get the book? Caught in the crosshairs of America. Wherever you prefer to get your books from, whether it's a local bookstore or online uh, book book uh, companies, or from Amazon. Amazon sells 85% of all the books in this country. So my handle in a number of these media things is, is Ask 
Dr. Lloyd, A-S-K-D-R-L-L-O-Y-D. And that was before Ask Dr. Whoever was very popular. But that's, if you just use that and put .com at the end of that, you get to my website. If you want to email me, you just put askdrlloyd at gmail.com. Folks, I, I highly recommend not only the book, but the website as well. There's a lot of wonderful information there. Lloyd, why now? I mean, you've, you've, you've written this is your 14th book. You've been away from McLean for a while. Why now? Why this book now? I think it has, for me, it has to do with the gravity of what is happening in medical care and how that impacts in a very negative way you, your family, me, our friends, that we're being shortchanged by the corporatization, by the commercialization of medical care. Medical care is now a commodity like coffee beans or shoes, and that's how it's run, which is that decisions are not in the hands of doctors. Decisions are in the hands of MBAs uh, and now automated systems. So it has gotten to the point where it's just everywhere. It's like kudzu, uh, the plant, and strangling, I think, uh, healthcare in this country. And healthcare in this country was not in great shape to begin with. And now, when compared to six or eight of the other large dem democracies in the world, we're at the very bottom. So something needs to be done, and I lived it. I had a first-person experience, so I thought, well, I like to tell stories. That's how I write. This is a really good story because it ends well. Yeah. So I wrote the book. How has this, how has this affected, you think, our country, mental health-wise, medically-wise? What has the impact been from your, your point of view? Well, as a patient or a family, <clears throat> you're apt to experience denial. You're not going to get approved for a medically necessary procedure that your doctor prescribed. That is a very serious result of this. You may get sometimes, but mostly the system is organized against you. It's organized to deny care. Then the impact on the actual provision of care, it's really hard to access care because it has uh, its magnitude, the amount of it, and its quality has diminished because doctors are leaving healthcare. They're leaving clinical care. It started with COVID and it's continuing because of two things that doctor groups talk about that drives them out of clinical care. Uh, the first is burnout which we understand burnout is not depression. Burnout is working in an environment, in a toxic environment that just eats you up. And the other is what's called more, what has come to be called moral injury, which is a fancy way of saying you're not living up to your own standards. You're not living up to your standards as a doctor, as uh, a you know, a, a person who is responsible for people's lives, because you cannot, and you, you're you living with that, and many times it's hard to leave, you don't have opportunities, or you just feel a duty to stay. So a lot of doctors are have burnout and uh, moral problems. Uh, they feel immoral, and they leave. So the workforce is diminished, and that means that those who are remaining have more work to do, so they're more apt to be burnt out. And the whole thing is cycling down without an end in sight. 
And that was why I thought, well, what can I say about this? I have some experience, but I have some ideas. And what are those ideas? How do we how do we address this life? There are three approaches, all, all used simultaneously. And they're not waiting for a miracle to happen like universal health care. Not that I'm opposed to that, but that's you know in the far horizon. What can we do now that's achievable? Three things. The first is by patients and families. The second is by professionals like you and me and our colleagues. And the third is judicial, which is different from federal. It's the courts and it's not sewer. So the first patients and families have to change. They have to stop being obedient and quiet and afraid to talk to the doctor or ask questions. They have to become demanding patients. And I bet you too, Joe, when a demanding patient comes in, asks good questions, well, how did you come arrive at this conclusion? What was your thinking about how you chose the treatment for me? What are my options? That's do somebody. That's being demanding, which is not going on now, but that begins to tilt the process. Suddenly, patients are revolting in a way, that, in a good way. They're attending to their own care, to their own lives. That's becoming a demanding patient and family also contributing as well. The second are professionals, and I'll just focus on doctors for the moment. Doctors have two very powerful tools that are hardly being used in this fight to maintain quality of medical care. The, the first is striking like nurses do, like we saw in Hollywood, which means unionizing, which is happens a little, but it is about shutting down services in a way that these corporations cannot ignore because they live and die on revenue and you shut down services and revenue plummets. That is going to reach them. That is going to impact them in a way that they think, hmm, I'll do something better. Uh, and then the second is already happening, which is not their large doctor groups. And they have contracts with insurance companies and managed care companies, and they're not renewing the contracts. And one example is in California, where a large doctor practice, largely Medicare practice, did not continue its contract for 30,000 people in the area. And the intermediary, this is called medical advan uh, uh, Medicare Advantage companies, they didn't take it seriously. And suddenly there was no contract and the doctors were not going to see these patients. And the patients were without a doctor, without a place to go. That's a very powerful intervention. And it takes courage because, you know, what are you doing? You're, you're saying no to patients, but you have to in order to grip the payers in a way that uh, they they have to respond. So those are two very powerful tools, uncomfortable, but effective. And then the third, which I've seen worked under, is what are called special masters. These are court-appointed experts who basically are given control of a company, institution and everything significant has to be run by them and they're there as a conscience they're there to ensure that the company is doing what it's paid for rather than saying no and these are called special masters they're very powerful they're used often in the 
criminal justice system and government, uh, and their role is often for a few years. They will use uh, one special master, very accomplished, was the one who uh, ran the distribution of uh, 9-11 claims by people in New York. So just to review, patients and their families sort of questioning why they're getting this particular intervention, why they're not getting something else, which means that they need to be empowered and educated. And I, 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 you know, I'm concerned about the word demanding because demanding has such a, we attribute a negative sort of pejorative view on a person who's demanding. But in this case, it makes sense. You, you have to be able to advocate for yourself. And there, there hasn't been that culture with patients, in, in part because yes. they think they trusted their doctors because their doctors didn't have to answer to insurance exactly. companies. Exactly. And I chose that word uh, because I didn't want to sugarcoat what we're asking of paid families. They have mm. to assert themselves or otherwise they're just going to be run over. Yeah. And then the second about us, the, the professionals, we talk about physicians because we both have our lived experience with that. You know, one of the one of the oaths we take is do no harm. That's the first thing that we take. How, and you said it's it's it can be very uncomfortable. How do we how do we manage that part where we you know our whole culture, our whole training has been you serve others, you help others. It's your your great honor and privilege to help others, and yet we're going to at least temporarily turn our backs so that I yeah, mean, that's that's a tough. It's one. because you're we, already violating your oath. You're already doing things that don't hold up to what you think is good care to standards, and they're getting worse. And you need to do something in a way that uh, shocks the system and shocks even you for saying, no, we're not going to do this. I'm not going to do this. And it has to be done collectively. Individual doctors, this is not a good idea. But doctor groups, medical staff organizations, large uh, groups of, uh, you know, hospital-based doctors, they can unionize just like nurses and they can strike just like, you know, the uh, writers in Hollywood. Really talking about how all of us have been impacted by the medical insurance companies who have, in some ways maybe gone more for their own pockets than the well-being of others. And I, I, I need to be cautious saying that because not everyone is like that. I mean, we certainly have, you know, many, many folks who are in the insurance world who very quickly will just say, don't worry about it. You know, we're going we're gonna to do what you need to do to help our patients. One of the things that uh, I'm on a commission here in, in Massachusetts looking at this issue with with a collection of both, you know, chief medical officers and people from insurance companies who are running them. And, you know, there was this idea that we're not going to pay for care because that patient of ours may change their insurance and go somewhere else, right? And my response is, so you're going to then inherit patients who have not received medical care and are going to be paying more for them. Why not just pay for them? And if they go somewhere else, you'll be inheriting a patient who is healthier. What about that approach? I just said, well, Lloyd, uh, <laughs> businesses run on business cycles. And if you are a for-profit corporation, that cycle is not three years or five years. It's three months or six months. 
And during that time, you have to keep the money going. You have to show a, a profit. And you do that pretty much in any way because the CEO, not just of the insurer, but of the hospital, their job is at stake. They need to make a profit or suddenly their $10 million uh, annual salary is gone because they're gone. So the whole hospital is driven by business cycles, by balance sheets, and that's what's happening to American healthcare. And how does that then get to the the third part of the solution, the special masters and the judicial? Where do they come in? Well, they come in by families, advocacy groups, going to court and saying, this is really bad. This is really destructive, and here's how. And the court, these administrative courts, are in a position to say, okay, I'm going to select a special master, appoint that master, because I'm the court, and I can take control of whatever I want, more or less, and install a special master through whom all the major decisions must be made. And you can think of that person as the conscience of the organization, the one who's responsible for seeing to it that they do what they purport to do, that they take care of patients in this case. I'm, I'm curious about that because sometimes, you know, these, these wheels of justice turn slow. We don't have the time when there's a medical emergency or a psychiatric emergency, how do we, how do we get it done quick enough? Do they, they can, but this is not an overnight procedure. It can take months and it's contested, but in the scheme of things, months is not the same as waiting five years or 10 years, hoping for universal health care. This is about intervening in a way that is on the horizon that is not so far away that we can't do it. I don't think that this gets taught in medical school, that we have this dilemma ahead of us. Do you think that's something that we should be teaching our, our medical students, our residents? I don't think people think it's about It's like anthropology 101 or sociology 101 for medical students. It's about understanding the culture that you're in and how that works to the detriment of those people that you're caring for and what can you do and how can you assert yourself and how can you help them assert themselves? So I want to go back then to McLean because I was also there, but what was that like for you? I mean, you were faced with a huge dilemma. I mean, how do you, how do you fight this? How do you advocate for this? You were fighting against a whole new way of, of medicine. Well, what radical like change, you? which is what we went through, is a team sport. You don't do it by yourself. And there was a small group of us led by Dr. Stephen Mirren, a close friend, that said, we're not going to take this. And we met constantly. We made change so quickly that the principal retort that we got from the clinicians who were with us was, don't do it so fast. Slow the pace down. And we would say, well, we can't do that because we'll get shut down. We have to turn this model over. We have to change this program. We have to change these units. And we did. 
as a team. And, and I was responsible yeah, for, I was the tip of the spear. Were you also sometimes put in the position of being the bad guy? I'm sure many people thought I was the bad guy. I was on a mission. So, so I, I was there to save an iconic hospital to continue to provide the kind of modern care it can and it did and open the hospital as well, as you saw, to Medicare and Medicaid patients, adult Medicaid patients. So this was about diversity of services and diversity of the people we served. And that was enough to fuel me, even through the hard times. Yeah. I mean, for folks who, who haven't been there, if you go to the McLean campus, it is absolutely beautiful. And there are all these basically old houses, weren't they sort of the, the places where very, very wealthy patients and families would say, well, we're going to, we're going to build you guys a house at McLean. Was that part well, of what that happened? That was really a small, I mean, there were 30 or more of those. But that was not where the principal change happened. That was about residential care for prosperous people. It was about how people were admitted to the hospital, how they were cared for in a brief period of time, how they were linked to the extent possible with community-based services like yours. And it was about measuring what we were doing, which was my defense installing a system that won lots of awards of measuring in the patient's view the change in functioning and symptoms that they underwent in the 14 days that they were in the hospital. So, and this was done anonymously though. It was not your doctor or your nurse filling out a form. You were given the form and you filled it out, encouraged to fill it out and put it in a lockbox which went directly to our research team. So you didn't have to be threatened that you were going to uh, essentially have retribution from the people caring for you. So measurement, these were parts of the process which we started and stayed the course with. And so what were you measuring? We measured uh, symptoms and functioning with one tool, was called the Basis 32, which was later adopted federally for some of the larger federal programs. And the second was what we called the perceptions of care. Now, all hospitals do satisfaction studies. How was the food? How was the bed? We didn't go anywhere near that. Our questions were, what was your experience of care? Were you considered respected? Were you involved in a uh, partner in selecting your care? Were you treated with respect and dignity? That's what the perceptions of care instrument measured. And when we saw that that wasn't happening here or there, we were big on what's called continuous quality improvement. So we would bring a team in. And one, one example of that if, if the time is a couple of the units, the patients said, the doctors talk over our heads. We don't know what they're talking about. And the quality improvement team said, well, we need somebody else to communicate. And first we had these, these were groups, these were education groups as well, uh, that we had a nurse 
participate. Patients trust nurses. Nurses know how to talk with patients. And then in time, we dared to also add people with mental illness, uh, what's called lived experience, who themselves illustrate that you can get better and that's what you need to understand and you need to be a partner in your care. That, so that was the work of a quality improvement team uh, and we saw the change. We saw the perceptions of care increase significantly over the course of six to 12 months after we did that. And, and was there resistance from the, from the physician group? Did they feel that they were being, you know, subverted oh, yes. in some way? Um, and, you know, at first, uh, Marin, et cetera, they, they just said, they're crazy. The hospital is prospering. Uh, what, what are they doing? And then, and I talk about this in the book, there are a lot of theories of change, but there is one man who illustrated what happens with radical change, and that was Mahatma Gandhi. And he changed a country from a British, you know, uh, colony uh, to a democratic state. Radical change. And he said, first they ignore you. Then they shame you. Then they fight you. Then you win. And that was what happened at McLean. So the, the people who didn't like what we were doing, at first they ignored us and said we were crazy. And then they shamed us. They're ruining the hospital, talk to the board, make public statements, try to say that, you know, we're doing this for the money. As you know, in academic medical centers, the money is not very good for doctors. So it was about it, shaming us, trying to shame us. And the only way to defend against that is to get better, is to be better, not yourself personally, but better in what you're providing. And was that the fight? And then they, yes. and then you won? Took five, over five years, Joe. You took hemorrhaging money yeah. every year. Uh, sometimes up to four or five million dollars a year and boards of directors don't like that so we had really uh, also incredible support from our board chairs you know, a sequence of them of that they knew this was about saving the hospital and they were very particular about our demonstrating how and what impact we were having and when we did they just kept us alive. Well, is that, that support, you can't do it without support. We were off air for a bit and you were, you were starting to say, Lord, that it was quite a ride. Let's hear about well, that. Radical change. Nobody likes change to begin with. And radical change, which is fast and disruptive and utterly different, is, stirs up all kinds of feelings in people. Nobody wants to be controlled and nobody wants to have change at such a rapid rate. That was the ride. It was about engaging those people who took care of the patients, the doctors and the nurses, in believing that where we were headed with them, the way they were going to be headed, 
was going to be better uh, for the patients and therefore better for them in terms of the standards that they live by. You know, I was there for at least some of it from 95 to 99, I was there. That must've been sort of just like the middle of, of, of this whole change. It was in 90, between 95 and 96 that we surfaced, that we no longer lost money. And not-for-profits don't make money, but they can't lose money and they need a certain amount of money to invest in continued care and buildings, upkeep, maintenance, whatnot. Uh, and we got to the point where that margin was restored and has been maintained for 30 years. This was radical change of what Jim Collins called built to last. This was not about turning things upside down and then disappearing. This was about changing the culture and a way that it was deeply rooted and has lost it. What happened? Because you moved on from McLean. You went and did all sorts of other really important work in, in our field. What happened? What principally sustained the gains were the near to 35 or 40 new programs that we started. So it wasn't about trying to make money from inpatient. It was about community-based services, children's services in the community. It was about outpatient clinics. It was one outpatient clinic when I started, the resident clinic. We went to 12. There was one residential center place in Back Bay. And then we had a dozen. And then we used some of the unused space on the in the hospital wards to as a transition from for very ill patients to go from inpatient to open care. So these, um, you know, this is, <laughs> this is part of the story. So I got a tough question. Why did you leave McLean? I was pushed out when Mirren left because he left to uh, in 97, 98, something. There had to be a succession. Somebody had to be named psychiatrist in chief and the, money was on me because I had been so engaged and whatnot. And I was not selected. And boy, that blew my blew me away because I thought, what is going on here? And why am I being treated this way? As if it was me. I took it too personally. It was that they didn't want to the boards and MGH, which controlled McLean, did not want somebody like me determining what was happening there, that I'm difficult to control. And they wanted to get rid of me in the same way they wanted to get rid of Mirren left. I didn't wasn't smart enough to leave. I just stayed. And then I saw the writing on the wall and I suggested, well, I could change my job because I'm not psychiatrist in, in chief. Or, uh, I could open a quality institute. We had all the ingredients for that. We had developed these instruments. We had published, we'd made some money from it. And what I saw was every door was kept closed to me. And that means you're out. And that was how it happened. And as you look back on it, what, what were they thinking? Oh, I, I have my speculation, which is that the person selected was not going to give them a hard time. 
was not going to be so mm -hmm. contentious or determined to oppose the will of who knows what. Uh, so, and that was the way it was. And, and things sort of faltered for a while because I was still there, you know, reporting to this new psychiatrist in chief. And it just wasn't the same anymore. It just didn't have the crispness. It just didn't have the mission. But we had installed so many new programs that we had essentially fueled the place for decades to come. So, Lloyd, you know, the, the title of the book, Caught in the Crosshairs of American Healthcare, wasn't just McLean, it sounds like. It sounds like it was Lloyd Setterer as well. Towards the end, he was caught in the crosshairs. <laughs> well, personally, but that's, that's not material. I, I was... You know, happen. I happened to be the tip of the spear. I happened to be there. It was about changing the culture of a hospital and doing that in a way that others could notice and say, hey, we don't have to be beaten down either. Yeah. And after that, you, you went to New York. Is that right? Actually, I went to Washington uh, for... Uh, what turned out to be a couple of years to work for the American Psychiatric Association, which Mirren had gone to lead. So this, this guy has got to be a saint to hire me twice. <laughs> he did. And either a saint or just a genius. Uh, I'm sure, sure more of a genius. You know, he, so, and then he decided to leave. His contract was up five years and he decided to leave. And I thought, Oh, I can't go through this again. It's up or out, and I don't want to go through that again. And I started scouting around, and out of the blue, I got a, you know told people I got a call from a deputy mayor in New York City saying, do you know there's a job as mental health commissioner here in the city that needs to be filled? I said, no, I have no idea. And they said, well, you're a good candidate. Uh, we want to see you, and I terrible schedule. I said, well, I'll, I can be there in a few weeks. And the deputy mayor was like a Thursday or Friday said, you have to be here on Monday or don't come at all. And there I was. Wow. And it was, um, I, you know, almost automatically I was offered the job because I had all these credentials, you know, I'd written books, I'd changed services, I measured quality, I was economically informed because of my years in Washington. So they offered me the job at the end of the day. Well, the health commissioner offered me the job at the end of the day. And I thought, hmm. uh, I said to him, I need to know more about what I'm getting into. And he said, what do you need? And I said, well, I need to visit for two days, and here's the agenda that I need, the people I need to meet, the, the material I need to look at. Uh, and, of course, that happened because he was in charge, and I saw, oh, my goodness, this place needs a lot of help, too, but it's a city agency, very large city agency, and maybe I can make a difference there, uh, too. So... At the end of those two days, I met with the health commissioner, and he said, well, what have you decided? I said, well, I'm glad to take the job. 
And then I had to be there a few weeks or a month or so later because <clears throat> there was a uh, uh, official governmental change in the health and mental health departments, which had been separated and they were to be merged and they wanted the mental health commissioner at that ceremony. And there it was. There you were. Incredible stories and really changing the face really of, of mental health in the United States. Lloyd, we're, we're coming to the end of the show. We, we talk about the I am approach, which is the idea that no one is broken. We're all doing the best we can influenced by these four domains, your home domain, social domain, the biological domain, and what I call the I see, how I see myself, how I think other people see me. Because the domains interact, a small change can have a big effect. We don't need to change everything. Given what we're talking about tonight, what small change can you recommend to our listeners? The small change for individuals is, I think, kindness, which is that, and it's different, gratitude is, is much more difficult to uh, deliver, but kindness is not. Kindness is about respecting the, the next person, respecting their ideas, and it's about not putting yourself in the center of attention. It is about thinking about the other person. That's kindness. And I think that's transformative for individuals who do that and could have enormous impact if we got going collectively on that. Yeah, I absolutely agree. You know, one of the things about the I am is saying we all want the same thing, which is simply yeah. to feel valued by somebody else. And whenever you remind someone of their value, you increase your own value. So why don't we do that more? Yes, I, I love the structure of, of this method or this thought process. So that's a really good question. <laughs> well, what would you do to begin? And then the second truth of the I am, because everyone is interested in what you think or feel about them, which has an effect on their biological domain, because you know it feels different when you feel respected or disrespected. This means you control no one, but you influence everyone. You get to choose the kind of influence you want to be. Dr. Lloyd Sederer, author, creator, person who has helped change the mental health in the United States. What kind of influence well, do you want to be? In order to get there, if I can offer a friendly amendment uh, about control, my, my view is we can control as individuals no one else we can only control ourselves and that's a very significant discovery and uh, it helps not hitting your head against a wall trying to control somebody else so i i think that's fundamental and then in terms of influence me personally um, i'm a teacher you're a teacher joe that's my identity. I'm a doctor and a teacher. And the more I have an opportunity to do that, the more purpose I feel on this earth. That's so true. And, and Lloyd, I, I just want to say as we end the show, I, I just want to thank you personally because I was there. You helped me become the psychiatrist, the physician, the human being who I am today. 
because you really did demonstrate that we can help other people. And it's okay to yes. make money while you're doing it. It's okay. Exactly. I mean, yeah. it's, it's, it's not, you know, I remember Mona Bennett said to me, you know, nonprofit doesn't mean you don't make profit. But I want to thank you, Lord, for being here. Caught in the crosshairs of American healthcare. Folks, please pick it up. You can get it Barnes and Nobles, anywhere. And give us your website one more My time. My handle is Ask Dr. Lloyd, A S K D R L L O Y D. If you just put .com after that, you're on my website. So please, folks, askdrlloyd.com. Lloyd, thanks so much for being here tonight. Folks, we'll see you all next week. Thanks for listening to The Dr. Joe Show. <laughs>